if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures, I would ask that you turn with me to the fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. We, uh, for those of you who are uh, visiting, we have been working, I don't even remember now where we started. Uh, I don't even, man, I, I think we are around maybe 17 sermons in. We've been working through, uh, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. And just what a convicting study this has been, and also what an encouraging study it's been not only to see our guilt and our shame as the Lord makes that known to us, but then to see the standard which we strive to live for. And we are actually going to be finishing chapter 5 today, uh, looking at verse 48. And so with that being said, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would just ask that you stand briefly as we read the Scriptures. I'll actually begin with verse 43. This is the words of Jesus Christ. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, the words of your Son, your Spirit has preserved for us in your Word are, are convicting, uh, they are challenging to us. Lord, we ask that we not shy away from this challenge, but that by your grace we would receive these things with ready hearts as you opened Lydia's heart so long ago that she might believe upon your gospel. Father, I pray that the true, unadulterated meaning of your Scripture would be brought out tonight for the congregation. Father, I, the, the preacher depends upon the work of the Spirit. Uh, without him, he can do nothing. And without the Spirit, the hearers cannot profit from this at all, for the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. Father, we need the Spirit who knows the mind of God to communicate the things of God unto us, we ask that you would glorify yourself this evening in providing that grace for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My God, how perfect are your ways, but mine polluted are. Sin twines itself about my praise and slides into my prayer. When I would speak what you have done to save me from my sin, I cannot make your mercies known, but self-applause creeps in. Divine desire, that holy flame your grace creates in me, alas, Impatience is its name when it returns to thee. This heart, a fountain of vile thoughts, how does it overflow? While self upon the surface floats, still bubbling from below. Let others in the gaudy dress of fancied merit shine. The Lord shall be my righteousness, the Lord forever mine. The words of the 18th century Anglican poet William Cowper. That phrase, the Lord is our righteousness, is, is a promise in the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. 
uh, about what it is that the Lord would do when he would usher us into his new covenant age. The Lord himself would become our righteousness. I hope that I can make that understandable uh, to you this evening. Great is the chasm which is fixed between God and man. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That God is holy, holy, and perfect, and we are not, and we are beneath them, is a reality that is as plain and evident as the sky is blue. One need only look to the magnificent temple vision of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6, where one glimpse of the glory, one glimpse of the majesty of God, and what does the prophet say? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in a people of unclean lips. That prophet, seen as a holy man, no doubt in his day, when he saw who God was, it broke him. But what is astonishing is that this holy God who is, though far beyond us finite creatures, he has chosen in his condescension, he has chosen in his love to draw near to us. And thus we read, and I want this verse to, to astonish you, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Listen carefully. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Beloved, God is such that he is far above us. He is far exalted than us. He is so different. He is so vastly superior. He dwells in the high and holy place. And where else does he dwell? With the lowly, with the meek, with the contrite in spirit and in heart. How exactly this is and can be is something that I believe we will have the opportunity to expound tonight as we contemplate these piercing and these magnificent words of our Savior. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, in verse 48, Jesus says this, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I've decided that I would deal with this verse in its own sermon uh, because I believe that those words have a certain amount of sting which we must all feel, but because I am also convinced that a correct understanding of that phrase gets us at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. However, devoting to this verse, its own sermon obviously does not mean we forget its context. In the preceding verses, we had Jesus' exhortation to love our enemies. Jesus illustrates how to love one's enemies is reflective of God the Father, who in his common grace shows love towards all of mankind by making his sun rise and set, sending rain upon both the just and the unjust. And the phrase Jesus uses in verse 45 is, you should love your enemies as you love yourself who, and, and God who does this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The child of God, you, you know, if, if a biological son resembles his, his biological father, how much more should a child of God resemble his Father in heaven? who has been brought forth not merely with a natural creation, but with a spiritual recreation. That phrase that Jesus uses tells us that the child of God should live in a such a manner that people would recognize who our Heavenly Father is. 
After all, when, when God adopts us, he puts his spirit within us. Verse 48, which we shall be dealing with tonight, is a continuation of the same theme, of the same flow of thought, but we have to wrestle with that word, which in my opinion, too many gloss over or try to explain away. You see, Jesus uses the word perfect, teleoi in the Greek. Perfect in the Greek language means perfect. Uh, perfect as in being complete of its kind, being without defect, being without blemish. And if we ask, well, you know, to what degree of perfection must we attain? You know, how perfect do I need to be? Jesus says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the level of perfection to which you must attain. That perfect. Now we cannot deny, obviously, that Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 uses hyperbolic, metaphorical language quite frequently. No sane or sober person interprets the text to mean that we should literally gouge our eyes out, for instance, so that we should then expect for any of us to literally be perfect in the way that God is perfect. We can't be that perfect in that same sense, not in the strictest sense, because God's perfection contains his divine attributes, his eternality, his omniscience, his omnipotence, etc. None of us, not even in glory, will ever be able to be described as such things. But I have consistently said, you know, even though Jesus' words are hyperbolic in nature, which of course they are, that doesn't mean that they don't have a meaning. There is still something here for us. And I believe that when we allow all of Scripture to speak, we are going to uncover an important truth. The first thing that this verse reveals to us is what God's standard of holiness or, or perfection or righteousness is. You see, this is not the only place in Scripture where we are, we are told to meet a level of moral purity that is parallel with God's. You see, in more than one place in the book of Leviticus, for example, we are told to be holy as God is holy. This is what we find you know, right there in the middle of the holiness code Leviticus 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter picks up on this Levitical language in his first epistle writing, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, in all that you do be holy, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That holiness is a central aspect of the Christian life is found throughout the New Testament. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, that is to disregard holiness, Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. To disregard holiness, according to the apostle, is to disregard God himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That, 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 that is another verse that should have a certain level of sting to you, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I had the opportunity, I was uh, eating breakfast with, with a young Christian man the other morning, and at one point I, I looked at him and I asked this question. I said, are you holy? And he was all nervous. He was kind of shocked. He didn't know what to say. I said, are you holy? Well, because the Bible says that if you're not holy you won't see God. So what, what, is, what does that mean exactly? But you, you see, you must understand that moral purity, holiness, and righteousness are essential things for the Christian. They are not optional. Uh, it's not as though, you know, there are some Christians who are the super spiritual ones 
uh, you know, and, and they're the ones who really take things seriously and they live holy lives. And then, you know, there are others who give no thought at all towards personal holiness and, and you know, they're, they're all right, they're, they're fine because, you see, according to the Scriptures, if you do not have holiness, you will not see God. Now, the Christian church proclaims many good and many true things. We tell people about the fact that Jesus Christ can take away your, your feelings of shame. Jesus Christ can take away your doubts. He can take away your hopelessness and all of these different things. And that is true. Amen. But the, the gospel is more about self-help and making me feel better. The gospel is about making me holy. Romans chapter 8, in the golden chain of redemption those whom he foreknew, he predestined for what? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Sometimes people ask, well, you know, what's God's plan for my life? I know his plan for your life. I do. I really, really do. If you're a Christian, his plan is to make you like Jesus, it's to make you holy. And, and, if, and if you have adopted a religion... If you have adopted a Christianity to which that is not a part of it, you've adopted a false system of belief. It is not a suggestion, but a command. And thus, Jesus says here on the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect. How perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember, we are not talking about being holy compared to other sinful creatures. We are not talking about being good, holy, or righteous compared to other people. You know, sometimes in our foolish pride, we can content ourselves to think, well, you know, compared to so-and-so, compared to the axe murderer, compared to Adolf Hitler, compared to these guys, you know, I'm kind of all right. You know, I'm not... I'm too, not too bad. You know, Jerry Jeff Walker had that song. You know, I think I'm an all right guy, but that's just really bad theology. That's, that's just not the case. You see, if you compare yourself to murderers and adulterers, you know, you may feel good. Uh, but that is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that to have anger in your heart, to have anger itself is to be liable to the judgment and to look at another woman with lust is to commit adultery in the heart. Remember, it's not being perfect compared to someone else. The scribes and, and the Pharisees in Jesus' time, that, that is what they did. You have the, you know, the Pharisee who stands and, and he puffs out his chest and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, not even like this lowly, sinner down here and you have the sinner who who he's not even looking up to heaven and, and he says god have mercy on me a sinner you see we cannot be those who would compare ourselves to others so as to feel good or to feel special about ourselves it's not about being perfect compared to someone else jesus says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect that is the level of perfection be holy as he is holy. God's standard of holiness and righteousness is that which is written in his own law, and it is one of perfection. This, then, serves as one of those places here on the Sermon on the Mount that reveals to us our unworthiness. It, it reveals to us our imperfection. Because if we really truly understood God's holiness, if we saw the vision that Isaiah saw when, when, when the Lord was surrounded in His glory and majesty by the angels and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If we saw that sight of God's holiness, it would break us and it would crush us. You see, if we understood that God's law served as a standard by which we will be judged. No rational person is then going to say, well, okay, looks like I'm good. Uh, we all have to recognize that we are all fallen in Adam, and we've all broken God's commandments. And thus the psalmist cries, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
We must all recognize compared to the standard of God's word, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Take heed of this passage from James. In James chapter 2, verses 8 and 11, the brother of our Lord says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You know, there are many who foolishly try to rationalize or make light of their sins. You know, okay, so I might have told a a little bit of a white lie to my my wife, but I mean, everyone does that. You know, I've I've always been faithful as long as her and I have been together at least. You know, I've never uh, laid down with, with any other woman. I never cheated on her or anything like that. Well, listen, the law of God condemns you. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not bear false witness. And and James, the brother of our Lord, says, whoever keeps the whole law, you could obey every single one of God's commandments perfectly, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Think about that. Whoever fails in just one point. You know, we think that we could look at God and, and argue and plead that, you know, it's just, it was just this or that, you know, one little sin and, you know, nothing more. James says, if you break even just one point, you're a transgressor of the law. You're a lawbreaker. Now, you know, to even, and that even is some hyperbolic language because to think that there is anyone out there who has sinned so little as to only break one point of the law, that's a laughable idea. Search your heart. You know that there have been many times where you've lusted, coveted, lied, stolen, and all manner of things. You know that if God Almighty should mark, should number your iniquities, should He bring out the divine scales, weigh your life against His law, you know, you know that you're a transgressor. You know that you're a sinner. And if you don't know that, then your heart is hardened. And if you do recognize that, if you do recognize that you're a sinner and a lawbreaker, you need to understand something. That is God's grace. Because some men God reprobates, some men God hardens, and he never allows them to see that point. But if you sit here and and you know this, if this this truth is being communicated to your heart and mind, that is God's grace. Respond to that. Seek for the vindication of righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ for, for the forgiveness of sins. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, cries out the psalmist, But then he says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now that's a powerful phrase. Forgiveness that you may be feared. God's grace, God's forgiveness and His mercy, it should break us. It should cause us to weep. It should cause us to worship Him. To fear Him. You see, what makes God so incredible is that He is both, at the very same time, He is both just and merciful. He is both, at the very same time, wrathful and gracious. We, we, we remember that, that incredible scene in the book of Exodus where Moses pleads with the Lord that he might see His glory. And the Lord says that, well, there is a place where Moses shall stand on the rock and while his glory passes by, he shall be put in a cleft of the rock and the Lord would cover him until he has passed by. Moses would see his backside, but his face he would not see. And and, and listen, this this is what we read in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord 
And, and obviously, you know that when it has LORD in all caps, it's, it's referring to the divine name Yahweh. I, I'm going to read it in that way. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So listen to who God is. Forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin, very same sentence, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What do you even say to that? How, how, how could I even make known to you the vast riches that are contained in that statement? Our God is so beautiful. Our God is beauty. I weep for those who don't know Him. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin, and yet He will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you're thinking about it, sometimes we we can fall into a danger when we're hearing a sermon. It's like, we just get into a sort of mode where we're just sort of hearing religious talk and we're not thinking about it. You need, please think about this. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, so sin, evil, wickedness, God forgives those things. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Now that, that if you're thinking about that, that might at first seem like a contradiction. For we just looked at the fact that all men are transgressors of the law. No one is going to stand if God counts iniquities. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Though God made man upright, he hath sought out many schemes. Adam sinned. We have all fallen in him. Every single one of us. All of you. With our sexual immoralities, with our lying, with our pride, with our anger, with our vanity, with our love of the world, with our disdain for holiness. You know, God made man, and He saw the good. He made man in His own image to reflect His divine character. So how sad, how disgusting to see those who bear His image be corrupted in this manner. There is no one who can stand. And he tells Moses he will by no means, by no means will he clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ladies and gentlemen, that is language of finality and completion. He will not clear the guilty. Which means, all of you, which means all of us should be crushed under his wrath, should be broken with his rod of iron. And he tells Moses that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. That's not a small number. Thousands. It was promised to Abraham that his seed should be as the sands of the sea. After church, go out, out, out to the beach off of Route 6 there. Count this, this number of grains of sand. You can't do it. And yet Abraham is told his seed shall be that vast and plentiful, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now how on earth can that be consistent? How can he keep steadfast love for thousands when there's not even one innocent person? And he's by no means going to clear the guilty. But yet he tells Moses that he forgives iniquity. He tells Moses that he forgives sin. How can this tension be solved? Well, we see that under the Mosaic Covenant, this was handled by means of atonement, or at least God revealed that is how he deals with sin. And under the Mosaic Covenant, you had, you know, you had a priesthood, you had animal sacrifices, and so what would happen is that the priests would offer up animal sacrifices that would be you know, atonement made for the Lord. 
the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What does God require for his law being broken? God's law requires a blood sacrifice. And that is at the very forefront of salvation history. Under the Old Covenant, God had ordained for animal sacrifices to be made as an offering for atonement. But what we must recognize is that these animal sacrifices were insufficient. Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The high priest offers sacrifices year after year after year after year. And guess what? The next year he needed to do it again. And he died, and another high priest would take his place, and year after year after year. And every single time he did so, what was it? It was in a nomnesis, Greek word, a reminder of sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, not year after year after year, Christ comes, he offers a all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now I pointed out that in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 3, that there's a Greek word used there, anamnesis. I didn't just say that to be geeky. The, the, the same word, anamnesis, is found in the Gospel of Luke uh, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says, do this in anamnesis. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, under the old covenant, what you had was a reminder of sins. Under the new covenant, we have a reminder of the sin bearer. We have a reminder of the one who has taken our sin from us. That is a beautiful thing. By a single offering. He has perfected. Jesus told us that we need to be perfect, right? Well, how, how does someone become perfect? By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And, and so when I look at my brother at breakfast and I ask him, are you holy? I'm going to say, listen, if Jesus Christ died for you, you are. Because his death was such that it perfects those for whom it was made. It sanctifies us. It's what makes us holy. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We cannot even, there's a lot in that text, but we cannot even comprehend what's being said there. God's son being born under the law. The, the moral law of God by which you and I will be judged, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ lived under that law. What? What condescension, what humility, what grace, what mercy, what love. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. This was the mission of God's son. Jesus Christ came into this world with purpose. It says, the angel told Joseph, shall call his name Jesus why? For he shall save his people from their sins. 
That was his mission. As he was under the law, Jesus Christ kept the law. Where we fell, he stood. Where we succumb to the devil's temptation, Christ responds back with Scripture and does not give in. Being made like us in the flesh and living a sinless life, he was able to go to the cross of Calvary, and there he took upon himself what the law requires for sin, a blood sacrifice. He took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins. Isaiah 53, verses 4-6, through six, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A prophecy of Isaiah written hundreds of years before Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, this is how we can truly be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. It is through Jesus Christ. In Him, we become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. He, He takes our sin, and we take His righteousness. He takes our punishment and judgment, we take His blessing. Come judgment day, and there will be a judgment day, it will not be our own works. It will not be our good deeds that we will have to present. We shall be covered in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. Let us contemplate this amazing explanation by Paul in the third chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 30. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation means that Christ takes God's wrath upon Himself so that we can receive God's mercy. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. We read that scripture from from Exodus that God will forgive iniquity and sin. He will uh, by no means clear the guilty. God is is going to remain just. He is going to punish sin. But He's also going to save us and and, and redeem us. And thus Paul says that by sending forth Christ, God still punishes sin in His Son, but then He gives mercy and grace to us so that God is is just. He's a just judge. He does not let sin go unpunished. And yet He is the justifier of the one who has faith. Uh, It says in Romans chapter 4 that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Not to totally get off on a rant, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, didn't understand that. In Joseph Smith's translation, he wrote, the God who does not justify the ungodly. Mormonism has no concept of grace. Our God, the, the God of the Bible, justifies the ungodly. By faith. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold, ladies and gentlemen, this was the battle cry of the Reformation. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do I have to do good deeds to earn my way into heaven? We hold, this is the apostle, we hold, we proclaim, we teach. One is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. This is the glorious work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are given a command that in our fallen nature we cannot keep. Jesus tells us we must be perfect. And yet he tells that to people who are already imperfect. Think about that. When Jesus on the, on the mountain, when he said you must be perfect, the people he was talking to were already imperfect. And imperfection cannot make itself become perfection. Perfect must make imperfect perfect. Christ Jesus is perfect as his heavenly Father is, and on the cross he becomes our perfection, and he is the one who perfects us. Remember what it says to the Hebrews, for by a single offering, single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus does the work. He is the one who perfects you. There is nothing more that needs to be added. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross is perfect. It perfectly saves all of those for whom it was made. Jesus Christ is a powerful Savior. There is no room for boasting in our salvation. There is no room for pride. We have not been justified by our own works or our good deeds, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Notice that Paul says, This was to show God's righteousness. You see, God shows, God demonstrates his righteousness in becoming our righteousness. So we read at the beginning, right? The Lord is our righteousness, the prophecy in Jeremiah. You see, that God would do this for unworthy sinners like you and me, that is what demonstrates his goodness. That is what demonstrates his perfection and righteousness. And so when Jesus tells us to be perfect, that is the standard. And it's a high standard, but it is a gift he gives to us imputed by faith. That being said, there's another point that needs to be made. Paul finishes that section with this in Romans 3, verse 31. After saying that we are justified by faith, not by works of the law, he then says, well, do we then overthrow law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That verse means two things. One, we know that the law is upheld because Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law, including the penalties for sin uh, it requires. But secondly, and Paul is going to deal with this later in the book of Romans, it tells us that when we say we are justified, forgiven by faith alone, it does not mean then that, okay, we'll just live however you want, right? Uh, on the contrary, we uphold God's law in our lives. We were looking at, at the Psalms this morning in, in Sunday school, and the psalmist talks about how he delights in God's law. He doesn't obey it begrudgingly. He loves it. He can't get enough of it. God has redeemed us from not only the penalty for sin, not only the punishment for sin, but from sin itself. We are new creations in Christ. We are new, redeemed people. God has made us pure in heart. He has given us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and He is satisfying those desires in more ways than one. And so when Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, there is a real sense in which we must truly seek to obey that commandment. And I remember what we talked about at the beginning. God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness, and without holiness none shall see God. We recognize first and foremost that our righteousness comes through the work of Christ, but we should never forget God help us if we ever forget that God sanctifies those whom he saves. Our lives should actually be holy. They should be, I'm using my words carefully, they should be perfect. And you say, well, you can't do that. I I can't either. And that's why God's grace is is there. We thank the Lord for it. When we sin, and we will sin, we we confess our sins to God, 
directly. You don't need to come to, to a priest. The, the New Testament tells us there's only one priest, it's Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and we're all, in a sense, a, a priesthood ourselves because we have direct ac- access to God. We confess our sins to Him, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we thank God for His grace when we do sin, but brethren, let us never forget that perfection is actually the standard. I don't believe I'm, uh, there's a Wesleyan doctrine that, you know, you can be perfectly holy uh, before you get to heaven. I don't believe that. I don't see that in the Bible. But that is still the standard to which we work for. Uh, let us weep. Let us be broken when we sin. Let, let, let us cry out to God for mercy, but also for strength that we might overcome, that we might vanquish and mortify those deeds of the flesh. I want to read from Psalm 51 on this point. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That that is the attitude of the Christian when he sins. Let Let us then look at the anger and the covetousness and the many other things in our hearts. And let us thank our Lord Jesus Christ who has freed us from their penalties, but let us remember He's also freed us from their bondage. Let us not be content with our abiding sin. There's that that old saying, to err is human. It may be so, but we are not called to the standards of man, now are we? We are called to be holy as He is holy. Jesus says you must be perfect. Our salvation is all of grace. It's through faith alone and not of works. But our salvation will show itself in our lives. It will show itself in our works. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says we're not justified by the law. Do not think that that's what I'm saying. The law justifies no one. That is not the intention of the law. The law is there to condemn you. It is the gospel. It is Christ which redeems you. But when Christ redeems you, the law sort of changed places. Where the law once condemned you, now you love the law. Now you desire to be obedient to that law. We uphold the law. We do not overthrow it, as Paul says. You see, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount not only shows us our unworthiness, not only shows us our unrighteousness and our need for Christ, it does and it does do that, it's important, but it also serves as the standard by which we aim to live. Brethren, that standard is perfection. 
it may very well be that God is calling this generation to a time of great suffering. I pray that he would show mercy. I pray that he would spare us from those trials. But we should know that only holiness and moral purity will provide us strength to endure. You who are still so in love with the world and the passions of your flesh, how will you have the strength to stand when someone threatens to take those things away from you? When the guard comes in with a gun in his hand and he says, renounce Christ or die. Too much of a love for this world. And the things they're in will draw a man away from Christ. Paul writes about Demas in love with the present world has deserted me. Gone on to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. In love with this present world, he has deserted me. Be like the psalmist who delighted in God's law. Make it your joy to be obedient to his commandments. Your Savior bids you be perfect. It's a hard word. It's the words of our Savior. Let this message be one of conviction, but I pray that there is strength. I pray that there is empowerment in these words. Because with the Holy Spirit working in our lives, God will do great things for us and for the world. Sometimes we go about our Christian life, we, you know, we lose our fire, we lose our drive, that first love. Brethren, rekindle that fire. Find once again that first love, fervently and passionately desire to please God. Rest. Rest always in His grace and His mercy, but don't grow complacent. Abide in Him always, for apart from Him you can do nothing. Be ye perfect. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we, we thank you for your law and for your gospel. We thank you that your word is, is a unified, consistent revelation. We thank you that there, there are no contradictions, that everything just fits together and works so harmoniously, dear God. Father, Father even the best of, of human works cannot, cannot achieve this magnificent feat which you have done in your word. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for the conviction that it brings. Lord, let us not despise the Spirit's conviction. Let us rejoice that you are so gracious as to make known our sin to us. And Lord, when we do sin, don't, don't let us feel like we need to be scared or to hide away from you. Remember, help us to remember, Lord, that when we sin, we can come to you. You're a loving Father. You will take us in your arms. You will restore us. You will set us back upon our feet. Thank you for the redemption that is in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.